0: The Atari ST lives on in 2021. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro.
1: High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology.
0: The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid
1: of computers. Street Fighter II comes to the NES. Is Galaga the perfect space shooter? The King of Kong skips domain renewal day. And camping with the Atari ST. All this plus our Community Question of the Week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Let's kick off the, the show, John, with some old-school fighting. And I'm not mm. talking about the way you pronounce NES or NES, because that's an <laughs> argument we'll never get to the bottom of. But you all know what I'm talking about when I say NES. Uh, and when we think about old-school fighting games, uh, particularly of the 8-bit era, console or computer, what stands out for you? What comes to your mind first, John?
0: Oh, not not too much, really. Uh, I guess uh, the the two player head to head mode in Double Dragon on the NES. Uh, it I think that was a mode exclusive to the NES version. It was sort of a uh, prototype fighting game that they built in as an extra mode on the NES port. Um, International Karate on the C sixty four definitely. Uh, that that might be the pinnacle right there. Uh, did IK Plus get an eight bit release, or was that just on the Amiga or the ST?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely did. It was on okay. the 8-bits first. Um, it was Archer McLean who made the game, and I think his, his British roots are reflected because it was first released on the C64, the Amstrad, and the ZX Spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it went on. I mean, I, I think I think I probably first played it on the Amiga. I didn't have it on the Amstrad, IK+, mm-hmm. but I've since gone back and played it on systems like the C64, and it doesn't lose anything whatsoever right. um, compared to the 16-bit version. Um it's uh, it's a classic. I think in the U.S. I've read that it was called Chop and Drop, but you obviously know it as IK Plus. <laughs> is Chop and Drop a, a name that you're familiar with? That's or yet another
0: name in the pantheon of poorly renamed games from the UK market to the U.S. <laughs> uh, we're doing the Chaos Engine uh, this week on Amigos, and it was renamed the most generic title you can think of: Soldiers of Fortune in the NES. I don't know are on yeah. the uh, on the Super Nintendo when it came out here. I don't know why they did that. This is so stupid. Soldiers but,
1: uh, of Fortune. Yeah. yeah oh my gosh there was a later 3d game called soldier of fortune but uh, it makes me think of the a team intro yeah, yeah. They soldiers of fortune yeah yeah yeah
0: but um no i i never played uh ik plus on of course i didn't have any uh eight uh, bit computers growing up except for the atari and uh it, i don't believe that i played international karate until later on so chop and drop still a mystery to me neil <laughs>
1: Okay, okay. Well, IK Plus uh, or Chop and Drop um, is a a pretty timeless fighter. I think the control scheme for it just works really well to get past that single button limitation that we had on a lot of those machines. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it does stand out as a classic for me. But if we break out of that 8-bit era, the first fighting game that will spring to most people's minds, I think, is probably Street Fighter 2. It is a game that reinvigorated the arcade industry and it took the one-on-one fighting mechanic way beyond anything that we'd seen before. Even its own prequel, even Street Fighter 1 or just Street Fighter, um, it it bears very little resemblance to Street Fighter 2. It was such a quantum leap over that game. Of course, it went on to become a huge franchise uh, and I always associate Street Fighter 2 closely with the Super Nintendo. Um, it was a packing title. It was. I'm sure it was a packing title for you oh, guys. As th- well, I mean, it? It they they made
0: as many uh, Super Nintendo bundles as the, in America as they made Amiga bundles in, in in the UK. You could you could get the snaps okay. bundled with almost anything. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the uh, Street Fighter 2 bundle was a huge deal over here. I mean, that, that thing mm-hmm. was a system seller. Um, Nintendo bought exclusive rights to the game from Capcom for, I think it only must have been a year or so, but it felt like an eon for anyone who didn't have a Super Nintendo Um like me, if you owned an Amiga like me, well, we just don't talk about the Amiga port. We don't go there. <laughs> uh, and that was the case for a lot of systems. Um, you know, w- when the exclusivity finally did expire, we found that the Super Nintendo, it, it done such a great job of that game that mm. um, very little stood up to it. There were good examples eventually on the Mega Drive. Um, The PC Engine did a really good job on its system. And of course, if you are rich and in Japan, the Sharp X68000 had pretty much an arcade perfect port of the game. Um, But if you could afford that, you could probably afford to buy the arcade itself. So I'm I'm not sure (laughs) if that really counts. Um, 3DO had a good version as well. But, um, you know, we're we're all talking Super Nintendo and beyond. And... um, It it was just a killer game. It was a huge system seller. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you might be able to correct me here because I know your NES knowledge is better than mine. I don't think there was ever a NES port of Street Fighter 2, or was there?
0: No, not officially. Um, I guess there was an unlicensed port in 1992. There was an outfit called Hummer Team that put this out. (laughs) And boy, it is is not good. It is not good.
1: (laughs) Capcom and Nintendo had nothing to do with it, and it shows. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, th- yeah, that would have been one of those dodgy, unlicensed uh, Japanese deals that you might have found down the market still, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, in yeah, the, the back alley
0: somewhere, So selling, selling your off-brand Street Fighter Two clones.
1: <laughs> yeah, or maybe on floppy disks for everyone who had those NES floppy disks. Yeah, the
0: action replay thing, sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and actually, um, I have come across uh, another bootleg for the NES called Street Fighter Three which mm. <laughs> I, I don't think it's street <laughs> fighter It's certainly not street fighter alpha or, or anything like that um and it, it lacks all of the polish that something that would have officially come from capcom might have had a hand in in my opinion um anymore and there, there's
0: one more um nintendo had a deal with uh, a lot of its japanese publishers in, in the early days of the nes and they said listen we know." that you can't produce an arcade-perfect game um, uh, you know, an arcade perfect port of whatever arcade game you want to bring to the nest. So what we want you to do is to take the IP, take the main idea of the game, but change it in some way to make it more adaptable for the consoles. And that's why you got, um, for example, Bionic Commando is a much different game on the NES than it is in the arcade. And it's actually in some ways a better game, the same way with Rygar. Um, and Street Fighter is no exception. There's, there's actually a game called Street Fighter 12. 2010 uh, that, that came out on the NES and, and it's it's uh, I guess this is, uh, according to Wikipedia, I've got the page pulled up here, uh, it features Ken Masters as a scientist. Okay, <laughs> I wouldn't picture Ken being a scientist, but hey, I'm not going to judge a book by its cover. Uh, Ken must uh, avenge the death of his co-worker Troy by donning body armor. Okay. Fighting mutants and aliens in this platform game. So <laughs> I guess this game is not actually part of the series. Uh, the Japanese Japanese version had nothing to do with Street Fighter. Uh, they just retitled it, I guess, to, to capitalize on, you know, Street Fighter mania. But uh, it's, it's the Street Fighter that really wasn't a Street Fighter, Neil.
1: Okay, okay. Well, clear as mud, clear as mud. But I can't blame them for going down that route. Um, a bit like you mentioned earlier, adding the one-on-one option in Double Dragon, um, just to mm-hmm. make a more rounded game for that platform that could play to its strengths rather than right. um, trying to be something that it wasn't. Um, but, however, there is news this week of a new attempt at a port named Street Fighter 2 Deluxe NES. So, I guess the Deluxe is a nad- nod to the fact that the older version that you mentioned does exist. So, that, that makes sense now. And I've got to say, I'm impressed with what we can see of it so far. Hopefully, Duncan will have been able to um, put some footage up on the screen for you to see. Uh, it, there's quite a lot shared on Twitter at the moment uh, and out on YouTube of this thing in action. So this is, it's not really a port. It's a ROM hack of an existing port. Uh, and that ROM being that earlier unlicensed game of Street Fighter 3 that I came across. So the developer is using that as a base and trying to turn that into the best possible version of the game for the NES that they that they can. Um, and it seems that they're very skilled because in this version, it looks great. You've got a roster of nine characters to choose from. The graphics look really incredible for the system. Um considering how much is going on you would think there'd be a bit of flicker or something like that but it's fast it's smooth it's solid Uh, of course it's not up to the super nintendo standards but it is really making the nes work hard and um well it looks very much like street fighter 2 i'm i'm really quite impressed on the face of this so john did you get to look at this in action and what did you think of it
0: you know, people wonder why NES games could look so good for so long. I mean, the, the NES really outlasted the lifespan of a of a normal system. And and I always, you know, growing up, I wondered, you know, there it's an 8-bit system just like the C64, just like the Atari. Why couldn't these games make the same leap? Uh, although, don't get me wrong, you know, games from the end of every system's life always look better than at the beginning. But uh, NES developers actually invented highly sophisticated mappers, which are essentially extra RAM and extra circuits that are strapped to the game ROM in the cartridge. So it essentially turns the game cartridge into a built-in expansion, uh, which of course majorly extends the hardware capabilities of the regular NES hardware. And uh, that's what's happened here. Uh, it looks like the same mapper that was used in Castlevania 3, which is one of the best-looking and best sounding NES games of all time, is also being used here. And, and it shows Neil, This thing is spectacular.
1: Hmm, Castlevania Three. Okay, I'm gonna have to look that one up. If that's uh, that, that's the pinnacle to you of, of oh yeah, NES. it's it's the
0: pinnacle of of graphics and sound for sure on the NES. It actually the Japanese version, I believe, actually shipped with an a sound an extra sound chip that was strapped <laughs> to the cartridge. So you know that with a disc based system, you just couldn't do that. Um, and and that was the real downfall of you know why uh, Amiga had such a hard time keeping up with the consoles toward the end of its life is because you could sell accelerators and things to put into your system, but nobody wanted to develop, to develop games for systems that not everybody had because it would hurt their sales versus with a cartridge, you put everything on the cartridge and boom, everybody's got the expansion.
1: Yeah, it sounds similar to some of the MSX games that went out. They had sound chips injected into them. Yeah, so, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very clever. I'm sure they came at a premium um, in the shops and of course, much more difficult to bootleg, mm-hmm. which is no bad thing. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. I'll check out Castlevania 3. But do you you know what else uh, other than Street Fighter 2 originally never got a port to the NES, John? IK+. (laughs) <laughs> I wonder if we'll ever see oh. that. You know, I think that would suit the system well. Well, you know, it's it's
0: funny you mention that because uh, you know, Archer McLean uh, did Drop Zone, and Drop Zone got hmm. a port to the uh, to the Super Nintendo. So uh, it is funny why IK Plus. You know, they definitely could have taken advantage of that second button somehow. Maybe they maybe they were confused on what to do with it in that
1: sense. Maybe, effect. maybe, yeah. But um, yeah, going back to this new Street Fighter Two Deluxe NES. It looks to be more than a tech demo for me, or at least I really hope it is, because I've not had hands-on playtime with it yet. I've just been watching it on YouTube, but it feels like they could have possibly nailed it, or it looks like they could have nailed it. Uh, And if it feels as, as good as it looks, then it could well be a contender for the best fighting game ever seen on the platform. So it's well worth checking out. Work on the game is being headed up by user Sebastian Angel over on romhacking.net. We'll be watching progress closely there. He's doing some quite detailed updates. And I suspect many will be watching this just to see how it turns out and what the NES is capable of. With so many versions of Street Fighter 2 out there on so many superior systems, it is hard to think of a reason why you might choose this version as your go-to, but I don't know. Gameplay is gameplay. And maybe we'll be surprised and we'll get hooked on, on it for a few rounds. Uh, I'm interested to find out. And um, it's, it's another one of those situations where it's best not to question why and just marvel at the fact that they've done it. And it seems like they've done it so well.
0: Neil, before we move on to our next story, which is related to an, an arcade, another arcade port, uh, I just wanted to give you a quick update from last week's Joust Transcode story. Uh, it looks like the uh, coder behind that Glenn Hewitt—he's added again. He's just released a transcode of another Williams classic. Uh, this time, it's the Rock Hard Defender. So, uh, if you've got a Tandy Color Computer three, make sure you check out the link in the show notes to play another arcade classic on your Tandy Color Computer. Now moving on, Neil. When the when the term space shooter comes to mind, what's the first game that pops into your head?
1: Uh, at the moment, it's Galaxian because I'm just looking across the room there and staring back at me is a broken arcade cabinet that I need to fix. Um, but when it's working, it's a really fun game. Uh, and I didn't, I hadn't played the game a huge amount, Galaxian, before that arcade cabinet came into the cave. I'd certainly played it, but not to uh, any great length. So having that cabinet to stand at and put quite a few hours into it. I came to realize what a great game it is, and and I'm quite hooked on Galaxian and quite sad that it's not working right now. So I'll go with Galaxian.
0: Okay, okay. Well, the first space shooter I ever played was the rather odd Atari 8-bit port of Space Invaders. But uh, the game that springs right up in front of my head is always Galaga. Uh, To me, it's pretty much the example of the genre. Uh, It's a perfect evolution from its predecessor, which you were just talking about, Galaxian. Uh, It's got everything. It's got a beautiful parallax-like multicolored starfield background, uh, bright, colorful aliens, uh, a perfect difficulty curve, and statistics, Neil, statistics. This is the first game I can remember that actually gives you your shooting percentage at the end of the level. Um,
1: is Galaga a special game for you too? Oh, statistics. Yeah. Accountants all mm-hmm. over the land were pleased when Galaga came out. <laughs> um, the thing I most remember about Galaga is that there was always a version of it in display at my local computer club, uh, club store. I mean, Dixon's was the local store. Um, they always had it on display. I can't remember what platform they had it displayed on. Um I want to say Spectrum, but I don't think the Spectrum got an official port, so it may well have just been some kind of clone that looked like Gallagher. Mm But the gameplay was the same. It had the star field going down the screen, and I was always quite mesmerized by it, um, and would play on it for as long as I could get away with playing on it in, in the store before the uh, shop assistants told me to move on or ask someone else let, let someone else have a go. So <laughs> Gallagher is a special game to me because I class it as one of the first games that I really lusted after when I when I saw it in store and had my earliest memories of video game shopping. I think.
0: Oh, great. Great. Well, if you dig Galaga in the arcade and you want to take the experience home to another 8-bit micro, uh, I've got good news. There is a brand new port of the 1981 Namco Classic now available on the C64, and it is very, very impressive. Uh, I'm telling you, Neil, I don't know how these programmers are able to squeeze so much juice out of these old systems, but this is yet another example of what could be accomplished given enough talent and time. Uh, According to the programmer, who's actually a user on our subreddit known as Mad Beagle. Uh, The game took about four months to convert, which, if you think about it, isn't really that much time at all, given the fact that this is probably not Mad Beagle's full-time job. I I wish that he was a full-time C64 programmer, but I doubt that that's the case. And, Neil, the game is all there. Everything from the jaunty fanfare at the beginning to the parallax starfield, the enemy patterns, it's all accurate to the arcade version. Except, for some reason, you don't get the shot percentage. The statistics are gone. No. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I'm interested to know why that was left out. Uh, Maybe Mad Beagle will hear this and let us know in the comments. Um, Of course, this being the C64, the animation isn't quite as smooth as the arcade version, and the action is just a little bit slower. But if you would have put this in front of a C64 user in 1986, they would have been blown away by how close this game runs to the arcade. Um, Neil, have you had a chance to check this out? What do you think?
1: I have checked it out. Um, Yeah, I I think what we need is uh, a Galaxy with no graphics and just statistics. So a space That's shooter, <laughs> text-based. text-based space shooter <laughs> with statistical analysis and moves, yeah. Um, no, it's really fantastic, isn't it? Uh, the C64, to be honest, it should be capable of doing this game justice with the hardware that it's mm-hmm. got. But, you know, people were still getting into grips with the system when it came out. And by the time people were getting the best out of the system, we've spoken about this before. Gallagher would have been old hat, and we've spoken about how games that were only five years or so old at the time would have been considered to be ancient at that point. So people didn't really consider porting them to the home micros or the consoles because they were just too old in their mind. Um, right. So it's great to see that this has got a really nice version. I should point out, however, that while we're talking about quality Gallagher games on the C64, there was also Galencia uh, back in 2020, mm-hmm. I think it came out, by Jason Aldred. Um and that was his homage to the game. And he did just a fantastic job of it there as well, adding uh, a few little extra features, um, just silky smooth sprites all moving around the screen at once, great sound effects, just a brilliant, brilliant version as well. So um, you're spoiled. If you're a Gallagher fan and a C64 owner, you're, you're spoiled for choice now. One
0: other aspect of this game I forgot to mention is that there's actually two-player co-op support. How cool is that? So players get three lives between them. And they can blast away at the aliens in tandem i love that i love i love it. any any time that you add you take a, a a classic game and you add a new twist to it as, a, as an additional option i mean i love the fact that mad beagle took the time to add such an innovative feature to the game in addition to crafting such a high quality port so if you'd like to check this out for yourself you can find it at arlagames.itch.io or just click the link in the show notes
1: John, have you ever found yourself in a position where you've unintentionally let a domain expire and lost control of it? Oh, yeah. I mean,
0: it's happened a couple times, but the one I always think about is I used to own, Neil, BrickTendo.com. That's right. BrickTendo. This was my storefront back in the mid 2000s. I, I had a little cottage industry out of my apartment where I sold Lego models based on various 8-bit Nintendo characters, <laughs>
1: all fully licensed, of course. Right. So you decided to take on both the IPs of Lego and nintendo combine them and sell them on the internet as your own bricktendo product is that is that what happens
0: i'm not saying i did but i'm not saying i didn't
1: <laughs> right right well you're, you're you're a regular alan sugar there john um yeah i'm glad you uh, you 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 realize the error of your ways before the law came down on you. So yes, that's true. <laughs> what happened? Did you just get bored of it and it, you let it expire? Or I, I'm
0: To be honest with you, I moved to South Korea. And in, oh, in okay. South Korea, it was difficult to maintain the business. <laughs>
1: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, another person who's let a domain name expire is our old friend, the King of Kong, Billy Mitchell. The famous gamer who achieved the first perfect score on Pac-Man and held multiple Donkey Kong records over the years. Or did he? That's the big question. Mm. Surrounded by controversy over his use of emulators to hoodwink the gaming world, Mr. Mitchell seems to have forgotten to renew his domain perfectpacman.com and it's since been snapped up and replaced with a website that sets out to debunk his records. (laughs) Uh, All of the records that he lays claims to, they just lay out all of the evidence on this website. Now, over the month of September, there appeared a nine-part series which was released, and it goes into great depth about the claims um, that, that Billy Mitchell made, all all on this website. So the claim made is that Billy Mitchell. It, it pretty much starts out like this on on uh, part one of the series. Billy Mitchell is a professional liar. That's what they say. That's the foundation. Wow, they don't of beat around the bush, it. do they? <laughs> they do not beat around the bush. Professional liar, uh, and then they go into nine parts to uh, substantiate that claim because. Uh, I think anyone who's made claims like that about Billy Mitchell knows that something's going to come back at you. He's, he's not shy in firing shots back at you. There's so much going on on this website. Whoever made it is is, is a man possessed um, with debunking Mitchell. And just at a glance... Part one of the series gives you an idea of how much back and forth there have been claims and counterclaims, threats that have taken place over the years regarding Mitchell's claims. It really is a messy, messy business. The more you read, the messier it gets. But it leads me to ask is that what Mitchell wants? He's always presented himself as a heel. I think, John, or if he hasn't, then he's embraced being considered that. And I think he's used that to perpetuate his own myth and his career as a gamer or as a, a gaming celebrity. Plenty of others would have disappeared into the shadows long ago, but I can't decide if he considers the negative attention to be a celebrity fuel of some type, or if he really believes all his own hype and considers himself not to have done anything wrong. I don't know. but we. Given the weight of the evidence over the years, I almost find that impossible to be the case. You'd have to be completely deluded, I think, to believe that side of things. So what we can say for certain is that letting your domain name expire, well, it can come back to haunt you, as we can see here. But John, what's your take on Mitchell, given the weight of the evidence? Um, not just on this website, because that's just one source Uh, And you've got to look further afield to be to be sure, Uh, although they do seem to have collated a lot of sources into one place here to substantiate their claims. But um, all of these claims over the years, John, is he innocent and is he good or bad for gaming, do you think? Oh, he is
0: absolutely great for gaming, (laughs) Neil. Great. Every hobby, every scene needs a heel. And uh, Billy Mitchell with his Stars and Stripes ties and his hot sauce, he is a perfect heel. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly convinced at this point that uh, that his records are not all 100% legit. But the fact that he's set so many legitimate records and posted so many high scores in public locations means that he's a real talent. You know, he's he, he's got real ability. And uh, whenever his name pops up, people take note you know nobody's talking about steve weeby anymore you know any of those other guys from the king of kong uh billy mitchell is still at the forefront and whenever a billy mitchell story comes up it brings more attention to the games that he's playing Uh, Which in turn bring more attention to the games from the golden age of arcade games. And uh, in my opinion, deserve to be remembered and celebrated. So I think, on the whole, the whole Billy Mitchell saga is extremely interesting. I think he's fully embraced his role as a heel. And I think the whole thing is a net positive for retro gaming for sure.
1: I don't know how you would implement this, but it almost feels like. Video gaming like this, you know, where you're trying to achieve a high score and submit it to some central place to say that you're the best in the world that there should be some kind of penalty if you're found not to have done. I, I know there is a penalty in that some have removed their high scores. Um, some like the Guinness yeah, World Yeah, actually, he have, got his... Uh, they've reinstated he, it, he, haven't they? The yeah, they were, they were removed
0: from Guinness and then they were reinstated. I know that there are several lawsuits that are going on. So it's definitely given something. It's definitely given the community something to talk about. And uh, I think that... I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I think that 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 Mr. Mitchell just revels in the attention. <laughs> I think he enjoys it. I think it brings more attention to his hot sauce brand. He probably he probably you know he enjoys that that side of things too. So, um, it's. To say you're the best in the world and then have your things re- revoked—I mean, you can you can call I can call myself the best podcaster in the world without impunity—and uh, so uh, I'm not sure if you can take away that title. I think all it amounts to is that people sort of look askance at Billy Mitchell. Some people actively hate him. But as I said, uh, you know, you need to have a villain, you need to have a heel and he plays that part well.
1: Sure. But you, you haven't submitted yourself to some kind of place to say I'm the best podcaster in the world. And they haven't accepted the evidence and put you at the top of the chart. (laughs) It's a bit like, um, yeah, it's like Ben Johnson winning the hundred meters, you know, sure, he's cheated and there's evidence that Billy Mitchell has cheated. So where's, where's Mm -hmm. the major punishment, you know? uh across the yeah i don't know i guess you know know. there's
0: no there's no ioc of uh of classic gaming so um maybe at some point in the future there will be but i think what the what the hobby needs is um, much better oversight, much better regulation and a wider body of judges other than, you know, just a guy in a striped shirt that's that's evaluating these claims. So uh, uh, you're right, Neil, something needs to happen and uh, it, don't get me wrong, as soon as this podcast is over, I'm submitting
1: my best podcaster <laughs> in the world application. <laughs> you do that. Well, I think we've concluded that somebody somewhere needs to do something. Um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but what we can be certain of is that despite all of this, Billy Mitchell is actually a good gamer i think there is Mm -hmm. you know there's truth in that you can watch him get pretty far he may not be the best in the world but he's certainly very very good at the games he claims to be good at uh and um i think he's pretty comfortable with being a good villain and i think this website only serves to add fuel to that fire so i don't think it's going to trouble him too much but if you want to see what this is all about you can check out perfectpacman.com to find out more and uh, let us know your thoughts in the comments when we release this um, over on Reddit and on YouTube. We'll check out the comments to see your thoughts on Billy Mitchell, let us know.
0: Neil, we all have experiences where we've wanted to upgrade our machines to play the newest games, but was there ever a time where you felt the urge to upgrade because of something more related to productivity? Um, Did word processing or other humdrum activities play a role in your upgrading that 8 or 16-bit micro to a more modern PC?
1: Um, yeah a couple of examples maybe not productivity but I was certainly caught up in the whole buying a PlayStation 2 to get a cheap DVD player uh, scenario you know it Mm -hmm. it was hundreds of pounds cheaper than any other DVD player on the market it it just really made sense you know Um, so I did get caught up on that and then I remember way back I was studying a bunch of Microsoft certifications um, for something called an MCSE back in 2003. so Microsoft certified systems engineer and um, I needed a new PC to get myself through the study and I knew that if I put one together for gaming, I would end up doing nothing but gaming and I'd never p- pass my certs. it would just I would just be terrible. So I sabotaged my my gaming self and I bought this really beastly it was a dual Xeon processor Dell computer um stacks of ram in there and a great big i think it was a 24 inch monitor which was huge at the time and uh, i had to pay it off over three years <laughs> i couldn't afford to pay for it up front oh my god it was it was huge but what it allowed me to do was run lots and lots of virtual machines and set up all these different scenarios so that i could read the book set up the scenario learn what i needed to learn and and really drill it into my head so um it did serve a purpose And yeah, I did once buy a machine solely for education. And I didn't have to convince my mum to buy it because I was able to buy it for myself. So yeah, I think that's the best example.
0: Oh, yeah, that definitely counts. Um, I, I was never really in that situation. Um, my dad was a heavy computer user from early on. So for serious work, and of course, by serious work, I mean typing papers for school. Uh, I always had a PC, uh, whether it was our first um, 80, 8088 clone, the XT or the AT, whichever one it was. Uh, the Pentium one we got when I entered high school or the PC that came with my dorm when I entered college for the first time in 1999. Uh, it's funny, even when I graduated from college in 2000 2003, those same dorm PCs were being sold off to students for something like 50 bucks a piece. So when I graduated, I just picked one up on my way out the door and I continued to use it for the next year or so. Um, But, Neil, I can definitely empathize with people who want to keep using their original computers for much longer than their normal shelf life, Uh, especially for early adopters of the 16-bit micros. Uh, Those machines represented their first computing experience for a lot of people, as well as a significant monetary investment. And uh, that's the subject of our next story. So... In 1985, Dutch entrepreneur Frans Boss bought an Atari 1040ST to manage Camping Boomerwald, I think is what that's what that <laughs> how you pronounce that. It's his camping business, Neil, uh, over in the Netherlands. And over the years, he's developed a graphical interface that shows all of the campsites and manages guest registration. So according to this video, he runs the system. He keeps his computer on 24 hours a day from (laughs) April through October. And he says that the computer has never broken down or given him any problems. Uh, Pretty impressive, right? Until now.
1: (laughs) I hope that's not what you're about to say. Because if this guy- Not this time. This is the
0: one story that we don't say that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Does this guy have backups? I mean, what's his plan? If if and when that thing goes down, does his whole business go offline? What happens?
0: I think that if, yeah, I think if the computer fails, the whole business fails. I think that's where we are at this point. Now, Neil, you've got a plethora of old computers in the new cave. Um, what what can they do? What kind of management application can you run on them? Don't you think that would be cool? Uh, maybe like an electronic guest book set up on an old pet or an Amstrad?
1: Well, I mean, they're computers, John. They can do whatever we want them to do. It just means they can't do all of the things we want them to do very fast because they're old. But, um, True. know there's lots of things a guest book is a great idea i love that you've come up with that Um, i think it would have to be like a monochrome screen maybe a green screen monitor oh yeah clacky keyboard that you can type on um something like that um i mean you, you could welcome guests because you know it'll be ticketed visitors here so i could set something up so that people can i don't know go and tick you know select themselves in a list and tick themselves off to say they're here I don't, maybe an accident book on an Amstrad CPC. You know, when you're bleeding out, you've got to get, go go and type in <laughs> the accident, <laughs> just so we don't get sued. Keep a record the of line. all the
0: all the calamities that would <laughs> befallen those visiting the cave. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So you know, something like that, or a guest book. It would be kind of cool if you could do a guest book on an old machine that then somehow got those comments online. Um, you know squirted them out online but there there would obviously have to be some kind of profanity filter on there because i was a kid (laughs) that went to computer stores back in the day and you know what you used to type on computer store machines so um yeah it'd be a nice touch i'll think about it maybe we can come up with something
0: cool cool well if you'd like to see franz's 1040st in action be sure to check out the video from youtuber victor bart and we thank subreddit user dave velociraptor for sharing this story with us now neil We go now to our community question of the week. Uh, Last episode, we talked about the death and uh, life of Sir Clive Sinclair. And we asked our community, what did Sinclair computers mean to you? And we got some great answers, Neil. the first one uh, comes to us from subreddit user the TheJepster, J-P-S-T-E-R. He says, I had a Commodore 64, and my English education was very BBC Acorn-oriented. Yet, I had friends with ZX Spectrums, and I have happy memories of playing Paperboy on a Plus 2 whilst my first school residential trip something oh well i'm sorry whilst on my first school residential trip something my eldest daughter is doing next week now you're gonna have to explain this to me what is a school residential trip (laughs) well
1: it's a school trip that spans several days or a weekend or or whatever so uh, when i was a kid we used to go to a place called canute house down on the south coast and you would um you'd be put in these horrible dorms with like plastic molded beds you know the kind and you'd all share a bathroom and it would be Mm. an almost prison-like experience, but a rite of passage (laughs) for a school kid. (laughs) (laughs) We have nothing compared to that in the United States.
0: Nothing. (laughs) Um, But uh, the gypster goes on to say, but mainly Sinclair is about Enderby's Mill, the building that Sinclair Radionics shared with Cambridge Consultants, which was his his former employer, and which resides in my adopted hometown of St. Ives, of which I was formerly the town mayor. Holy cow. so he goes on to say, so I often go down to the quay side and imagine telephones being thrown in the hubbub of frantic engineering development. I look at the mill and I think about the pocket calculator about Thurlby Thandar instruments formed out of the wreckage of Sinclair Radionics and the AIM half of CC and based a few miles up the road. And about Cambridge Audio and Meriden Audio, both founded by people from that group of companies.
1: Wow. What a great story yeah yes yeah, great so, uh, um, he mentioned the, the the mill there and, and um, uh, I've had a few comments in the past um, about this building that I'm in and apparently well it does because I've seen pictures it looks identical to the old Sinclair radionics mill so it's what quite, is it about what nice. is it about
0: technology companies taking root in old mills neil
1: i don't know i i guess it must have just been low rent i know this place the, the current people here um did bought this place when it was like derelict in the 70s and, mm. I, and i think you know it didn't even have a roof on it and i think there was a lot of mm. that about the heritage of these old buildings just was ignored so people snapped them up cheap and, and did them up and now they're really really valued and um Uh, celebrated for their heritage so um you know Sinclair not only being a technology innovator had the probably had the foresight to um to snap up a building like that as well
0: right right um Asian Cyberman writes, I went to high school in New York where I was able to use pets and Apple IIs, but when we returned to the UK, there was nothing remotely affordable until the Spectrum 48K came out. I learned to program, became interested in computing again, and 10 or so years later, I started a computer company, which has now been running for 23 years. I'm now semi-retired in Thailand, but without Sir Clive, I think I would have had a much duller life. I owe him everything.
1: Yeah, it always amazes me when I speak to, um, when I I interview American game developers from the late 70s, early 80s. They often have a story about how they had access to some terminal that connected back to some mainframe. And, uh, you know, that's Mm -hmm. how they learned to program. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how common that was over there, if you guys all had access to a terminal, but it certainly wasn't over here. And the ZX Spectrum is what made it so accessible to us all. Um, this is 18, 18, yeah, 18, I think well. I, th-
0: I think a lot of those guys were probably university students at the time, and so right. they did have. Because I know that like you weren't just walking around Hurricane West Virginia in 1978 <laughs> with terminal <laughs> access coming out from every every storefront. Okay, I wasn't
1: sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and finally, we go to Smarty one and he says, "I was studying computer technology at high school, and the teacher was the deputy head." A stand-in who had no idea at all about computers. The only reason I passed my O-Level was that I managed to save and buy a ZX81 and teach myself programming along with playing mini-games. I then moved on to a 48k Spectrum. I have since had a 35-year career working in technology thanks to him. He was a legend. And yeah. uh, Neil, I wish I could go through and read all of these stories. If you, uh, I, I highly encourage everybody to visit the this week in retro subreddit and check out this community question of the week because so many people have wonderful, um, sort of you know, touching stories about their experience with Sinclair Computers and uh, and the legacy of Circlive. So please, please do that. Now, Neil, this week's community question of the week is related to our Atari ST story. Uh, are there any special purpose applications you're still using on your 8 or 16-bit micro? Are you still doing payroll? <laughs> Are you still <laughs> keeping track of inventory? Let us know if you're still using your your 8 or 16-bit computer to take care of those things. Or if you've heard about anybody nearby you doing that, we'd love to hear about it. Please post your responses in the subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week.
1: The more dangerous, the better. Today's episode of This Week in Retro comes thanks to our partners at Anchor FM. Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be.
0: That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info.
1: This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our
0: community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us
1: reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.